Hi, I'm Isabel. Elise is my mom. This week on the show, looking back at Serena Williams' historic career. After that, we talk Emmy nominations. And Emmy snubs. And Emmy snubs. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. The head of the English monarchy, Queen Elizabeth II, left this realm, her realm, on Thursday. The queen passed at Balmoral Castle, ending a reign that lasted more than 70 years. And no matter if you love the intrigue of royal gossip or hate the devastating impact of her family's imperialism, this is a historic moment worth unpacking. And we want to unpack it with you. We'll be talking about the royals in an upcoming episode, so we want to hear from you. Send us a voice memo to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. And tell us, what does the royalty mean to you? What memories, good, bad, and bizarre, stick out to you? In the meantime, for today's episode, we're going to turn to another great with a long legacy. She's been called the greatest of all time. She's the one and only Serena Williams. When she announced that she will be stepping away from tennis after her last U.S. Open this year, I knew that watching tennis wouldn't be the same without her. I grew up with her. We are the same age. I have been watching her since I was a child. All this to say, Serena's tennis career has been long, longer than most players, and so illustrious. She won her first major tournament in 1999 when she was just 17 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1999 U.S. Open Women's Singles Champion, Serena Williams. Over the past two-plus decades, Serena has captured 23 Grand Slams, four Olympic medals, all gold, by the way, and through all that, she became a mom, dealt with injuries and health issues, and faced a lot more scrutiny and downright bias than her peers. Even so, she made herself iconic, the GOAT and open doors for so many more players to join the sport. By existing, by being excellent, her and her sister have made it easier for the next generation and the generation after that. That's Alex Abad-Santos, a Serena superfan. I'm a senior correspondent at Fox. I cover entertainment, culture, and like three sports. (laughs) Tennis is one of them. And figure skating and gymnastics. I am a flagrantly homosexual man. So, yes, these are the sports I love. Alex and I talk about a few of the big moments in Serena's career and the legacy she leaves behind. What was your first introduction to Serena Williams? Right when I was like around like maybe a senior in high school or a junior in high school, the Williams sisters came on. It was like 1999. And I was like, I'm going to go see him play. And my mom being a very nice mom was like, yes, I'm going to let my son go watch women's tennis and watch uh, Venus and Serena Williams. Take us back to Teenage U. What was it like being in the crowd watching her for the first time? I can remember them coming on the scene and it was just like, wow, they hit so hard and they had the beads and it was just like the show, right? Like you you were buckled in and you're just like, what are they going to do next? They're basically changing the game as we play it. And I copied like everything they did. <laughs> not <laughs> to the same to the results? Sa- <laughs> not to the same result. Absolutely not to the same result. Those of us who are children or teens and actually saw the Williams sisters, Serena and Venus come up. At one point, Serena differentiated herself from Venus. What makes her different from her sister and all the other tennis players? What separates Serena is, one, that serve, 
it's hard to explain to a non-tennis person how flexible your arm needs to be and your like mind-body connection to hit a serve into that box. Mm. So many things can go wrong with a serve. And what's crazy about it isn't just that it's fast or that it's hard or it's placed well. It's like that toss looks the same every single time. And so when you're trying to return it, you can't read it. You're like, I yeah. don't know where it's going. And that's kind of been like her weapon. It's like, well, she can dictate play. She can dictate the point. You don't know what's coming at you. It's a surprise. I can't imagine returning it. And I think the other part is Serena doesn't get enough credit for playing world-class defense. I think because she's such an aggressive player and she's such a powerful player, you kind of like forget that like she's speedy around the court. Her anticipation is very, very good. She could turn that defense into offense better than anyone in the world. She is also strategic and has a certain kind of finesse and lightness of foot that is is not just in power. You know, it's not just communicated yeah. with power, right? I think I think the, the it's easy to get caught up because it's glamorous, it's spectacular when you see like a thud. Like when the ball makes a thud and it's just like, oh, yeah, it's wow. Yeah, dramatic. Like, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> but it's also like how hard it is to win in a vintage Serena match. Like how hard it was for her opponents to win points off of her based on her defense was crazy. And if you look back at those matches, she was moving so well, so fast and getting to a lot of balls that a lot of women couldn't. When did it become clear to you that she is arguably the greatest tennis player of all time? Oh my God, <laughs> like multiple times? <laughs> it became apparent again and again. It was a series of times. It was like every single time anyone doubted her. One of the things that you see in the 2007 Australian Open, it was like she won the Serena Slam. She basically was dominating. She got hit by injuries and people were like, well, I think she's done. She wasn't ranked number one. She was like ranked number like, I want to say in like the 80s or 90s. And people were like, well, you know what? The game is past her. <laughs> They were like, Maria Sharapova's here, Amelie Moresmo's here, mm. good luck, good luck to Serena. And Serena's like, well, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be back to number one sooner than you think. And so she went as an unseated player, ran through the draw. She went <laughs> unseated. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that means basically you're playing the hardest players all in a row versus a seated player. You get a little bit of protection. Right, you, right. Mean, so you, don't face, you don't face the hardest players until the very end. Right. And at the end, she goes up against Maria Sharapova. <laughs> who's basically been anointed the successor to Serena. Everyone was like, oh, well, like, she, there's no way she can beat Maria Sharapova. She beats Maria Sharapova 6-1, 6-2, basically. <laughs> an expression of omnipotence by Serena Williams. Convincingly, she is the 2007 Australian Open champion. Never loses to Maria Sharapova again. I wish I loved things in life as much as Serena Williams loves beating Maria Sharapova. <laughs> it seems like she took personal offense to it. Like, she was just like, well, I'm never losing to her again. Like, I may lose to someone else, but her full-time record against her is 20 and 2. <laughs> Whoa. And it's like, I think, I believe it's like 18 or 19 in a row, depending on whether you consider, like, the 2007, the start of it. But it's just like a steamroll. And But yeah, I mean, I think what's kind of crazy is that in Serena's career is that there's always been doubters and there's always been people, instead of being like, because I think when you see Rafael Nadal or we talk yeah. about Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic, there was always like, can they, can they change history? Can they beat history? I hope they do it. With Serena, there's always been a, she couldn't do this. She can't do this. It's always like Serena been like, well, actually I could. Here, here are the 23 Grand Slams that you said I couldn't win based on the way I was playing, based on the way I acted. Here we go. 
And this whole notion of doubters or people just saying she couldn't do this, she couldn't do this, does take a darker edge when it comes to misogynoir, right? The combination of racism and sexism she has had to face throughout her career. I mean, absolutely. Nothing is more indicative of that. In the 2001 Indian Wells, she boycotted the tournament afterward, but... Mm, Say more. So in 2001, let me set this up a little bit. Like, headed into that tournament, basically, Venus and Serena are 19 and 20 years old. They are winning. There's all these weird conspiracy theories around them. They're like, I think they're fixing matches. They don't want to play each other. Their dad is masterminding and saying like Venus would win here, Serena would lose there. And so what happens in the semifinals of the 2001 Indian Wells tournament, which is still a huge tournament to this day, Mm -hmm. the Williams sisters are supposed to play each other. Venus pulls out because of an injury. Everyone just gets very upset. A crescendo of booze for Serena Williams. And I believe Richard Williams is the one who says that, like, yes, there were N-words thrown at us. And, and it was, like, boos and hisses. And the crowd, an American crowd, booing an American family. Uh, the whole crowd turned completely ugly. And you have to say that it does smack of a little bit of racism. The ostensibly very wealthy people that can afford to go to Palm Springs, California, watch a top-rated women's tennis match... Uh, one of the biggest like tournaments of the year, and they're just booing them. It's just so many insults at them. So dramatic, yeah. And then Serena, of course, as always, she'll win. But like... <laughs> Still won. But she's through to the title and has won for the second time. She basically goes on and she goes to boycott this tournament for the next decade or so, which I think is kind of a bold thing to do, especially when it comes to winning prize money, winning points. And it's just like, well, I'm not going to play here. I don't care how big the tournament is. I don't care how much money is at stake. I'm not playing here because of the way I was treated. I think she finally came back, I want to say a few years ago and wrote this. She has an open letter about what it meant and what that experience did. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I don't think, I think it's hard to imagine someone else being as graceful and putting up with as much as she did. She was always stuck to her convictions and stuck with her, like, her integrity. You see that throughout her career. She very, very much loves the game and will do anything for the game. But she also has a high regard for herself and a high regard for, I guess, the player she plays. So let's talk a little bit more about legacy. What other lasting impacts of hers really stick out to you? I mean, I think about like how hard it was for her. Mm. I think about how uncomfortable she and her sister were made to feel by tennis because I think tennis is very, it still Stodgy. is like a very insider. Yes. It's an insider sport. Uh, if you if you're an Elitist. outsider, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. white. <laughs> you. <laughs> I love tennis, <laughs> but it's also like the magnitude of the number of people who picked up rackets, the number of people who want to play tennis, mm. uh, the people who never saw themselves on a court who saw Serena, who saw Venus, and were like, yes, they make me want to play tennis. You can't quantify that. It's like Naomi Osaka, Coco Gauff. They were like, yes, she absolutely inspired me. And it was just like, that you can't quantify, but that's such a great thing and such a magnificent like part of her legacy. Like You could say like 23 singles Grand Slams, four gold medals, and like 14 doubles, but it's just like being able to do that for so many people and like, And changing those worlds and changing those lives, I don't think we'll ever be able to thank her enough for, and I don't think those players will be able to thank her enough for what she's done and what she's been able to do. And I think that influence goes 
far beyond just women athletes, also women in general or people who can become pregnant in general. Because one of the reasons she's stepping away, right, is because Mm -hmm. she wants to have another child and she wants to focus more of her energy on being a mother. And I was so moved um, as a working mom that she wrote about that, right, in her note saying that she was stepping away, just that, hey, it's sort of impossible for me to do both with the sort of energy that I want to give to being a mom and continue to play at this high level. So right. I thought that was really moving. It's, it's like, yes, she's been dominant, but it's also like she's also spoken up when it comes to like black women's health. She had a health scare. Yeah, after her daughter was born. It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. I'm like, listen, I need you to run a CAT scan with dye because I have a pulmonary embolism in my lungs. I know it. I know I, I've had this before. I know my body. And that actually is still a problem. It's just like, well, Black women's health concerns aren't taken seriously. And it's like if, and Serena wrote about this and was like, if I'm not being taken seriously. And, and I'm I, Serena Williams. And I'm Serena Williams. Are you treating all the rest of the Black women in hospitals? Absolutely. And I think that like, it's yeah. like she's, she's opening a conversation. I know she isn't the first person to talk about what it takes to raise a family. But it's just like when you have Serena Williams doing it. It totally helps the cause. And I think like yeah. it's just like her legacy isn't just being excellent, which is I would I would kill for that legacy. But it's also like shining light to these other very important topics culturally. Talk a little bit about the impact that she had on culture when it came to fashion. She's a favorite of Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue. She's co-hosted the Met Gala. She's been sort of pushing athletic wear in a different direction. What about fashion moments that stand out to you? Anything? I mean, the Van suit, right? Yes, that's right. It happened at the French Open, I believe. And again, a, a kind of terrible part of it, it was like people were like, well, it's giving her an unfair advantage. And it was like, well, I'm actually wearing this because of blood clots. But anyway, fine, I'll take it off. I will win some matches here, whatever. I also was there when she was, I think she, I can't remember what year of the year, so maybe 2019, there was like a tutu almost. And then she had a different one for every, uh, for every match. And it was kind of fun to see. It was just like, what's she going to wear next? What do you think makes these fashion choices so significant? Like, why does it matter when she steps out wearing beads and braids when she was a teenager <laughs> or a cat suit or a series of tutus or diamonds or, or diamonds <laughs> what kind of statements do these make well it's like it's someone who is comfortable with the spotlight mm. it's someone who says here's the spotlight put it on me here's the show you're gonna get tennis is a very solo individual introverty sport right yeah, like we're yeah. it's very lonely out there when you have like an outfit and you're wearing I guess, how many diamonds was she wearing? If you're wearing that many diamonds, it's just like, you have to take the pressure of like, I'm wearing like all this diamonds, I better not lose. And it's just like, you have to be okay with that possibility. And it's like, for her, I don't think that's ever factored into her mind. She doesn't think about pressure the way normal people think about pressure. She accepts it. Which brings us back to why we're talking about Serena and her legacy in the first place. Does her decision to step away feel early to you? Oh my gosh, you can't ask me that. <laughs> That's unfair. You cannot ask someone who loves Serena Williams. Like, I mean, obviously it's unfair to the fans because mm. we're, we, we're all going to say she should play more. We all, saw her, <laughs> we, we all saw her tap into magic and beat the number two player in the world and just completely uh, look like she was 27 again. Yes. 
like, of course we're going to say that, but it's just like, also, I think it's her choice and it's her, it's always been her choice. There's no talking her out of it. All her career people have said, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And she's always been like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's like, I think stepping away at this time is something that she wants to do. The U.S. Open has my money for tickets if she decides to come back. Even in stepping away, she's fully herself. It's Serena's rules. It's always been up to her. It's always her decisions. Alex Abad-Santos, writer at Vox, covering three sports, including tennis. (laughs) Three sports, yes. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Alex Abad-Santos. He is a senior correspondent at Vox. Coming up, the Emmys are this weekend, and with so much TV to watch, how does anything rise to the top these days? I talk it out with two critics. Stay with us. TV's biggest night is in just a few days. It's the Emmy Awards. And to talk about the nominations, I called up two critics. I'm Lorraine Ollie with the Los Angeles Times, and I'm a culture and television critic. And I am Roxana Haddadi from Vulture, and I am a TV critic. In our chat, Lorraine, Roxana, and I talk about how nominees even rise to the top in an era of so much TV, which shows were snubbed, and which shows they hope will take it all. I am really excited about Yellow Jackets. I am extremely into this cannibal show. The same. I love the idea that, you know, portrays teenage girls in a very different light than we normally see them. You know, it's not a Heathers type thing. It's actually more like Lord of the Flies. I know what you want to hear. But the truth is, the plane crashed. A bunch of my friends died, and the rest of us starved and scavenged and prayed for 19 months till they finally found us. And that's the end of the story. But I'm also excited about Better Call Saul and to see what happens with that, and particularly with Rhea Seahorn. For those of y'all who watch the show and don't know the name of the actress, this is the actor who plays... Kim Wexler. The swinging ponytail. Oh, gosh, yes, the high pony. (laughs) The high pony. The really straight attorney who then kind of went bad. I love it. And then uh, we break up. And I didn't want that because I was having too much fun. All right, so looking across all the nominated shows, I'd love to just get a sense of what themes or tropes jump out this year. Something that stuck out to me is I think that it, you know, we have lived a very scammer season, a forever Mm. scammer season of TV in the past year or so. And I think that was reflected in some of these nominations. We have Inventing Anna. We have The Dropout. We have Squid Game. We have this sort of appreciation for or interest in that sort of duplicity. I think it's sort of a, not an easy thing perhaps to nominate, but I think that there is a level of, you know, interest there that really came to the forefront in the nominations this year. What do you think it is about seeing scammers in art that is attractive to us? Uh, I think what's interesting here is that these scammers are mostly, arguably, people who are in it purely for themselves, right? These aren't like Robin Hood scammers who are then like disseminating cash. They are people who ripped others off and kept it for themselves or who actively hurt people. I mean, Theranos actively hurt people. So I think that there is just sort of a grim fascination to all of this. Um, And, you know, grim fascination is what we love about TV. What was Game of Thrones, if not grim fascination? (laughs) 
Lorraine, what about you? What jumped out at you thematically? Thematically, you know, it sort of dovetails with what Roxana was just talking about. And I'm looking at wealthy white people behaving badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the think- Silicon Valley hero shows that came out this year. Yeah. Anti-heroes. Exactly. Um, and Succession, White Lotus, Inventing Anna is yes, in there. Yes. You could argue that Pam and Tommy are part of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe even some of Euphoria. Are you making fun of me or did you actually think I was auditioning for Oklahoma? Why the f*** would you audition for Oklahoma? I'm not. Then why the f*** do you look like you're auditioning for Oklahoma? So what? Yes. And HBO is fantastic at that. HBO corners the market on that. Even when we go back to Game of Thrones, even when we're looking at now House of the Dragon, they're great at zoning in on entitled white folks uh, doing bad things. What is it about these themes that's enjoyable as entertainment? I mean, I hope it's not aspirational. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope it's not aspirational. I hope it's more just if you weren't following these stories in the news, I think that you are learning about them for the first time through television. Mm. And I think that some of these shows do a very good job with episodic structure and leaving you wanting more. I think with the, you know, watching the wealthy white folks eat themselves alive, that is sort of satisfying in a way of, aha, finally you get yours. Mm -hmm. You know, in capitalism, you are sucking everything up to the top. We have nothing down here. Now we get to watch you suffer. And I think there's something incredibly satisfying about that. And may I suggest, I think that's also why Severance was a must watch for some people, because so many of us could relate to that idea of your work has taken over your life. Yes. So how do you set up boundaries and barriers to try to create some semblance of balance? I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. And it's wrapped in like a genre, mystery, sort of sci-fi, Philip K. Dick package. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think that idea of wanting to carve out an identity for yourself that is not tied to work is something that people really related to this year. All right, Roxana, you wrote about how with all these nominations, the Emmys really chose monotony. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that is that I sort of meant two things. Okay. One, I think that when a show eventually reaches the Emmy nomination stage, I think that it nearly automatically gets renewed nominations each year that it's on. So I think that sort of returning shows benefit from this. I think about something like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which <laughs> I frankly don't know anyone this who is my watches beef, that. Right. Yeah. How like I, I'm keeps sorry. Reading? I, I don't I, I don't understand how this is getting nominations. But I, I think that once upon a time, it, you know, was a show that people really liked and were watching and was a conversation piece. So I think it has maintained that sort of, oh, hey, we recognize this show. We know that it was good. Let's automatically get it in there. So I think there's sort of like a recurring bias that occurs. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the monotony. The Emmys, if you look at just, if you're just looking at the nominations and we're not talking about the actual ceremony or the shows, it seems like it's for folks who relish familiarity, sameness. Mm. And, you know, in the drama series, five of those nominated are returning shows. And a lot of these categories are, you know, taken up by two or three shows, Ted Lasso, Succession, returning shows. So that right there, to me, it says kind of the voting body are there to sort of gravitate towards what they know. 
And the other part of the monotony that sort of frustrated me is when I was looking at the limited series nominations, Mm -hmm. and there are a couple of categories where all of the nominees are just from, like, two shows. Like, a lot Mm -hmm. of the supporting actor and supporting actress for a limited series nominees were either from The White Lotus or from Dope Sick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have only two shows eating up all the nominees. It's not that there were only two shows that were worthy, right? Like, that's not true. Um, So my wild suggestion was that uh, shows should limit themselves to one nominee per category, which would probably cause a bloodbath within the show itself in terms of competition. Right, right. But it might open some doors for some other shows. We're living in a crazy amount of TV, I think that bloodbath could actually be its own version of Squid Game. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, that itself could be a reality Lorraine, show. Lorraine, where is my gold mask that I can put on and watch? <laughs> As I if want it Hollywood right now. wasn't cutthroat enough already. Let's yeah. just increase the stakes. Yes. There's something like 800,000 scripted shows on television. According to Nielsen, uh, they found that this is the most ever, and this was the count between February 2021 and February 2022. It's hard enough for us as viewers to know what to watch, but how do the Emmy voters even try and keep up? I don't know that they do. You know, I don't, I, frankly, it's almost humanly impossible. And when we both know as people covering television, it is incredibly hard when it is your job. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, when it's just a, a matter of voting, I don't actually think they do keep up with all of it. Um, and I think that's part of the problem and that's, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of the same, you know, uh, the titles and shows come back. Yeah. Right. When you're talking about the voters, you know, if, if they're, you know, working in sound on something or they're working in, you know, costumes or whatever it is, you know, they're not necessarily going to be looking at the breadth of where we are in television right now like critics do. And so that lends to patting each other on the back. Who do you know? What are you familiar with? Who have you worked with? And I don't know if that's necessarily a great barometer of what the best television out there is. And I think I would be both fearful and interested in something like an anonymous Emmy voters ballot, because I know when the Oscars come around, I read those every year and become infuriated (laughs) Um, to Lorraine's point of so many voters just being like, oh, no, I didn't watch that movie. Like, oh. Um, so part of me would want to read one of those for the Emmys, uh, just so that I could, you know, rage against it. But I think to Lorraine's point, I think she's a hundred percent right. I don't think that anybody could try to watch it all. And I think that this year there were some shows that were so universally liked, rightfully so, Uh that I think they couldn't be ignored. Like Abbott Elementary, like that show was huge, very well liked great commercial viewership, great critical numbers. And so I think because it benefited from having a longer season on quote-unquote regular TV, I think it sort of became a cultural juggernaut that rightfully got nominated. Well, because you two have watched all that content, I want to turn to snubs. Which shows Hmm. or performances really stuck with you that were totally robbed? Hmm. Reservation Dogs. Um, That was... That was very disappointing. Um, I think that was totally robbed. Also, Blackish, uh, last season of Blackish, mm. and nothing. It's won one Emmy since it debuted in 2014, Jeez. and that was for hairstyling. <sighs> I mean, that's, that's just wild. absurd. Yeah, that's that wild. show is so, was so 
um, incredibly topical and funny and smart and could turn on a dime. And for it not to get anything, particularly in its last season, um, I, I felt personally wounded. I was like, this <laughs> is the biggest snub. Okay, we are Lady Parts um, oh, on Peacock. Oh, I don't even know I this know. show. Say more. <gasps> it was snub okay. too. <laughs> and it's a and lacks awareness. Oh. So fantastic. It's a British comedy about an all-female Muslim punk rock band. You know, yes, okay, was it a long shot that it would get nominated? But I really, really hoped. It won a Peabody. I thought, okay, maybe it'll get nominated. Roxana? I strong cosign Reservation Dogs and We Are Lady Parts. We Are Lady Parts was my number one TV show in my rankings mm. last year for Vulture. So I'll carry that snub with me forever. And I'll remember. So, you know, know that, <laughs> Emmys. Um, the other two that really upset me were the complete lack of nominations for We Own This City, which was from HBO. It is about the Baltimore police officers who basically were just doing whatever they wanted in the city. <laughs> and it's sort of a companion piece to The Wire in that it is a portrait of a city that has changed over time and that has really uh, noticeable problems with how it's run. Um, and I thought John Bernthal's lead performance was wonderful, and I was very surprised to see it snubbed. And then I remembered that The Wire was mostly snubbed as well, yes. so I guess I wasn't really that surprised, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that was part of my frustration with feeling like dope sick and inventing Anna and the dropout. Uh, we're getting all the nominations in those categories. Um, and I was also really disappointed that Pachinko was mostly snubbed oh, as well. Right. I believe it got a nomination for like opening credits. Um, but that was another Apple TV plus show that was just really beautifully mm, crafted. Yes. A multi-generational family epic. It was the kind of story that dug into, you know, history and, how forces of war and colonization and invasion shape culture and who we are. And that was another one that I was just like, how? Right. <laughs> how did this happen? Okay, before we wrap, of those that didn't get snubbed and did actually get nominations, who are y'all going to be rooting for when you watch the Emmys? I'm really rooting for Yellow Jackets. That and um, Severance. I just think Severance is fantastic. Adam Scott was so good in that. And I am just going to say this. I am anti-Ted Lasso. I do not want Ted Lasso getting anything else. I Thank know you, Lorraine. it's, it's Thank like you, Lorraine. punching a teddy bear and then lighting it on fire to say that. But Them's fighting words. Yeah. You know, it's the white savior story. It's it's okay. It's fine. It's a feel good in some ways. But the boomer humor, no. No, no, no more. There's so much good <laughs> stuff out there. Lorraine literally said down with teddy bears. Like that's what... <laughs> That's what Lorraine that said. That is the takeaway from this conversation. <laughs> it is. Teddy Bear is bad. Oh, Cancel great. them. Thank you so much, Roxana and Lorraine. Thank you. Thank you. Would you two stick around to play a game with me? Yeah. Ha ha ha. You know what it is. All right, coming up. Who said that? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh, and I'm here with TV critics Roxana Haddadi and Lorraine Ali. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Thank you. All right, and we're here to play a game called Who Said That? 
All right, here's how it works. I'll share a quote with you that you might have heard in the news this week, and you guess who said it, or if you don't know who specifically said it, you can just guess what it was about. There's no buzzers. You just yell out the answer, and then as usual, you win nothing. Zero prizes, just bragging rights. Excellent. Great incentive. (laughs) I'm ready. Okay, here's the first quote. You know... My favorite thing about the movie... Harry Styles. Is like... <laughs> He's talking about Don't Worry Darling, it's Harry Styles. <laughs> Roxana won. That's one point for Roxana. I cannot wait for you to give us context for this. I'll read out the full, full quote here. You know, my favorite thing about the movie is like, it feels like a movie. It feels like a real, like, you know, go to the theater film movie. <laughs> that was the full quote, Roxana. Roxana, tell us what this is all about. Uh, well, I mean, Don't Worry Darling is a film that is coming out. It is directed by Olivia Wilde, coming out in September. Perhaps you've heard of it, or perhaps you've heard about the drama surrounding it between Olivia Wilde, her current boyfriend, Harry Styles, who is the film's lead, the co-lead, Florence Pugh. It's been a lot of festering stuff happening there. And uh, at Venice, where they are currently promoting it, Harry Styles and Chris Pine were in an interview and Harry Styles was asked, what does he like about the film? And he answered that he likes that it's a film. Uh, And there were many memes made of Chris Pine's face (laughs) just sort of (laughs) listening to this. And of course, we're all projecting things on this situation. uh, But it's a quote that will transcend time when talking about art. And then also in Venice, did Harry Styles spit or Mm, not spit on Chris Pine? That is the deep question right now. Yes. They're saying he didn't spit, but... I, a strong supporter of conspiracy theories, say that he spit. I don't care that there's no proof. I'm sticking by this. This is my Joker origin story. She's here for it. Mm. She's here for that, people. Yeah. All right. Next quote. Roxana already has one point. Ah, the pressure. It's so easy to, like, not be a scumbag human. Sell your clip-ins and zip it, insurrection, Barbie. This is not from the world of television. It's from the world of music. It's not, is it Brandy Carlisle? Roxana, you're in the right genre. Oh, Taylor Swift. Keep guessing. Country. Oh, wait, no. Is it the person who raised a lot of money for trans issues? Yes. That quote comes from country singer Marin Morris, who's best known for the song, My Church. She is tweeting in response to Jason Aldean's influencer wife, Brittany Aldean, who made transphobic comments on social media. Marin and Brittany's tweets made it onto Tucker Carlson's uh, show. And the chyron for Marin Morris was, <clears throat> quote, lunatic country music person. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Morris uh. then put that message, lunatic country music person, on a T-shirt and raised $100,000 for nice. trans wow. organizations. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, Roxana, you basically already won, but just for um, Lorraine's pride, we'll give you a final quote. And Lorraine, this is your chance. Oh, no. The pr- okay, my ego, it's just dropping. So at least put a point on Alrighty. the board. All right, All right, go for it. Final quote. This is heaven right here. We're in it now. That's really bad writing. It is a quote that happened during a celebrity wedding. Is it J-Lo? Is it... <laughs> Close enough. It was Ben Affleck. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. I, you know, I've redeemed myself by getting an incredibly strong hint and you practically giving me the answer, but still, I'll take it. I'll take that one point. <laughs> 
They were part of a portmanteau. So even though you guessed J-Lo and the speaker of the quote was Ben Affleck, I'm giving it to you anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, they're the same, right? Like, (laughs) sure. They're interchangeable at this point. Good for them. So this is heaven right here. We're in it now is a line from a movie flop that he started (laughs) and directed. And J-Lo recently revealed, or I'm sorry, she changed her name. Jennifer Affleck recently revealed that he said that line, um, which was one of her favorites, apparently, that he's written as part of his wedding speech. I love it. What's it for? Is it from Live By Night? Yes, it was from Live By Night, a movie that I didn't even know existed. I thought it was from Geely. No, Live By Night is like the, it's like the gangstery one. Isn't it him and like Sienna Miller, maybe? But wait. Geely is also a gangstery one. Yes, well, different time periods of gangster. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, clearly. Yes. All right. <laughs> All right. That was awesome. Congratulations to Roxana. Thank you. Who won nothing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to both of you, TV critics Lorraine Ali and Roxana Haddadi. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Before we leave y'all, don't forget we want to hear your takes on the passing of the Queen of England and what's next for the British royals. So send us your takes to ibam at npr.org, I-B-A-M at npr.org. We want to hear from you. Let's process together. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, Jessica Mendoza, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Yolanda Sanguini is our VP of Programming. And our big boss is NPR's Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. I'm Elise Hugh. Thanks for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Until next time, take care, y'all. <laughs>